the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up on this Monday, we're going to talk about the coronavirus, and we're also going to talk about the size of your church uh, and what does it say about the health of your church. You are listening to The Common Good. Happy Monday. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad that you're joining us today. Uh, You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, on Twitter at Common Good Talk, online, 1160hope.com. Find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. And last week, we had lots of guests. Lots of guests come through the studio. You can find all of those on our podcast. Uh, Go ahead, wherever you get podcasts, subscribe, rate, review. And uh, thank you for those of you who do that. Normally joined by Ian Simpkins, but Ian is still out. He was out all last week. Uh, He will be out another day or two, I think. Starting to lose track here, John. John, our producer, is behind the glass. Do we know when Ian's coming back? I, I was thinking, like, usually a week is pretty standard with with taking uh, taking. Well, he's time not on off. vacation though. But it's one. It seems like this one extra day is like. <laughs> all right. Okay. We ran out of stuff to do too. We're like, I don't know. We need Everybody back. said no. They all said no. John and I are going to carry this show today because now we, I can hear radios turning off right now as I speak. Uh, because it was amazing last week. All these people came through, and then all the people we asked to come through today. Politely declined. Authors, <laughs> local church leaders, where are you? Apparently Monday. We get it, you spoke yesterday, but come on. Mon- Mondays are not the day that people want. No. And so we're going to fly this uh, this thing solo today. We got this. And we are excited for Ian to return later in the week. Uh, and uh, yeah, we're not. It's going to be like uh, we're going. I'm not going to remember what it's like to do a show with two people. It's going to be. Who, who are you again? Wait, are you a guest? You'll make. Uh, no, my name's on the show. Like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, the one thing it was this weekend was beautiful. 55 degrees yesterday. Oh, I got a taste of spring. It was just spectacular. It really was. Now, uh, I, I wasn't out all that much yesterday, but between driving kids to this or, of course, you got basketball games to coach and those are inside. But right. still, even walking to the car, you're like, oh, yes, no, I yeah. can make it. I can make it. How about yourself? What would you do? Well, I we had church, obviously, but in the afternoon, I had a few hours before our young adult gathering. That was also just church, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> I mean, it's a given. Let's go. Church, clearly. <laughs> it's, it's become just a you know, part of my life now. But, you know, it, I, I had a chance to, to walk around my neighborhood, go down by the river a little bit, and, and just... To drink it in. It was March first, which you know. To you me, drank the river in. <laughs> not the fox. Not not the fox. Like walked down by the river, drank it in. <laughs> All right, do what you I guess do. in context, that sounded a little bit strange. <laughs> no, it, it'd be a. You know, it was a little breezy. Yeah, it beautiful. Smelled day. like spring. It smelled like life. It was beautiful. Yes, beautiful day. Speaking of beautiful days, uh, today. Well, what, real fast. Let me tell you what I did this weekend. You know what I did on Saturday? What? I woke up and I told my son. I told all my kids, but only my son took me up on it. 
I said, uh, I want to do something today. Let's do something fun. And my son and I, we went snow tubing at Villa Olivia. You have to explain. I have no idea what that so is. So Villa Olivia is, uh, is a very small ski hill in Bartlett, right? Okay. They make all their own snow. And uh, and uh, snow tubing, it's, this, it's like four runs that are just really fast down. And you sit oh, on the okay. tube, and then you ride the little conveyor belt up and back down. And uh, it was a blast, and I'm sore because 42-year-old people probably aren't supposed <laughs> to be snow tubing on a Saturday. But it was really fun. Nice. And Wilmot's got something like that. Yeah, it was it was fun. And and it, the reason we went up there is because they make their own snow. So they were like, yeah, it's, uh, literally there, there was no snow. Do you notice a difference between like actual snow and the, the artificial stuff? I didn't. This was pretty icy just because it had been beat down pretty good. But, man, right. was it fast. And then... Yeah. Here's what gets me. You would start spinning on your way down sometimes. Oh. I do not do spinning well. I do not <laughs> you do spinning see where well. You're going, oh, man. I do not do spinning well. <laughs> I don't do it at amusement parks. I don't do it anywhere. And so uh, some of the runs I woke up, I got up from and were kind of like, ooh. <laughs> oh, man. I got stories. We got, there's a sledding hill in, in McHenry uh, that people would bring hay bales and build these jumps. Yes. The thing is, at night, you can't see the jumps because yep. it blends in with the rest of the hill. And I go down on those saucers, and those things spin, too. You can't control them. Yep. And we'd hit them yep. unprompted. That does not Break our tailbones, probably. Yep. I was seven or eight. You know, you can't really. You're healthy. You, you don't break bones. Right. Often, but, man, that hurt. Yeah, that does not sound fun. No. At all. <laughs> but today is a big day. Do you know why? Today why? is National Egg McMuffin Day. Oh. And- <laughs> So at McDonald's today, using the app, I read this, you got to use the app. They're driving people to the app. Uh, if you use the app, you get a free Egg McMuffin all day at McDonald's today. And I'm going to go on record to say the McDonald's Egg McMuffin is the best fast food breakfast uh, sandwich. I agree with you. I, I legitimately agree with you. Okay, uh, I'm going to take they, that. They do breakfast right. Yep. Like when, when uh, Taco Bell came into the game or BK came into the game. <laughs> McDonald's, you could tell they were just kind of like, oh, yeah, that's we'll cute. And speaking of coming into the game, did you also know that today, Wendy's will debut their eagerly anticipated breakfast menu nationwide? Uh, or they did already uh-huh. this morning, and uh, I was not able to stop by, but I, I, my guess is uh, uh, that, that would be a big thing. deal. Wendy's tends to do fast food better than most places. It's my favorite fast food place for okay. burgers. I, I'll choose it over anything, in, including, like, Culver's. Like, mm. they just do okay. burgers right. If they if they apply that same quality to their You're breakfast... In. You're in. I, I might be... Uh, might be choosing them over Mickey D's. So yes, Wendy's is getting into the uh, into the uh, breakfast game. But I did want to reflect on one thing from the weekend. Hopefully, you had a chance to worship and go to church. John said, "Of course, he was at church on Sunday." Oh, of course. Uh, hopefully you were able to. I'm the pastor of Four Corners Community Church in Darien, and I had the privilege of preaching this weekend. And uh, it's it was a message that has stuck with me. You know, as a pastor, uh, the best messages are the ones that you're preaching to yourself. It often feels like the, the ones that you need to hear. And I had the uh, the privilege of preaching this Sunday on the topic of what does it mean that we have our hope in Christ. Uh, and I just thought I would share just a thumbnail sketch of that because some of us probably need to hear this good news here on a Monday afternoon. Uh, what does it mean? That uh, that we have our hope 
in Christ that Romans 15 calls God the God of hope. Because so many of us, we all put our hope in things, right? We all put our hope in uh, in our health, in our relationships, in our bank accounts, in our portfolio, whatever else it might be. Uh, we put our hope in things. And when those things end up being tenuous or volatile or those things start crash down, we, we can be going to despair and become hopeless. Uh, the book of Matthew chapter, I believe it is seven. Jesus says to build your house on what is a firm foundation to build our house on the rock. That is him. Uh, and I would suggest that the only place uh, where we can put our hope that will withstand, that will have the ability to withstand the good times and the bad is when we put our hope in Christ, because Christ said in, in even the worst times, I will be with you always. Uh, first Corinthians 15 tells us that because of the empty tomb, Jesus has already defeated sin and death, that we live in this already not yet here where we still deal with that, uh, but that he has already won the victory and that uh, Revelation 21 and other passages point to a day when the pain and the suffering, the tears and the heartache of this world will be no more. Uh, and so I wanted to just share that with you today. Where do you put your hope? Uh, where is your hope that can withstand the storms of life? Uh, scripture tells us, put your hope in God. In Psalm 42, David says, why is my soul so downcast? Why am I so downtrodden? And then he says to himself, put your hope in God. And that is my prayer for all of us today. Where we're off and running here on a Monday afternoon. Coming up next, uh, we're going to talk about the coronavirus. And we're also going to talk about what is uh, the church's uh, response to the coronavirus. That's coming up next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Monday afternoon. Ian Simpkins, my normal partner in crime here, uh, is still out. He will be back uh, later this week. Um, but until then, we are going to keep continuing to drive this uh, drive this ship and uh, see where it goes. And uh, you, we had lots of great people in last week. Uh, while Ian was gone, everybody from, you know, Kevin Sampson to Kurt Wiggins to Ken Johnson uh, to Dave Getz and Greg Arthur. Lots of people coming through here and uh, really was a fun week. And I would encourage you to go back and, and listen to some of those. Um, listen to some of those interviews. You can do so on our podcast, wherever you get your podcast, subscribe, rate and review. You can also do it online at 1160hope.com. And uh, there you can access uh, old shows. And so uh, would love for you to listen to those. You can also find us on Facebook, Common Good Radio Show, Twitter, at Common Good Talk. John, I've got a question for you. You said in the last segment, obviously you went to church this weekend. Mm-hmm. Like, it, of course you went to church this weekend. Where do you go to church? Uh, Christian Fellowship in Crystal Lake. All right. And uh, did you guys... Do or have you guys done anything different at your church with it being flu season, coronavirus fears, all of this stuff? Was there anything different at your church this weekend? Not that I noticed, not at all. Not that you noticed? No. People stopped coughing on each other at least? Yeah, and actually, the, I think more people have been coming, honestly. I mean, usually, I mean, we have a membership, I think, of about 300, and usually it's maybe two thirds full yeah. on a usual basis, but. They were. It seemed more. It's because it was nice outside. I guess, but like usually people are like, "Oh, there's a bunch of diseases roaming around." So our church was more full this weekend. Part of my thinks that the week before we had so many people sick 
that it was a low Sunday that uh, I think then people come back. They don't tend to miss two in a row. So it's like, <laughs> all right, well, so more people the coming guilt out. complex. There like, you go. Uh, I guess I got to go. We actually tried changing up how we do communion this week. We actually, ah. so people, less of putting your hand into a common bowl and more got kind it. of individual. Uh, we do the setup. little cups. Yep. The tiny little cups with the little bread uh, tablet thing. So we, don't, then... we don't normally do that, but we did it that way this yeah, time. So, okay. uh, And I bring that up because there was an interesting article uh, that said this. Local churches change practices for uh, mass. This is a Catholic uh, article. As precautions amid coronavirus outbreak. Uh, it says this. Roughly 120 uh, parishes in the Diocese of Joliet are under precautionary directive indefinitely. Many parishioners are following suit. Uh, It said this, due to the ongoing flu season, no chalice will be offered for the foreseeable future. In addition, the optional sign of peace will be omitted at all masses. After making this decision, uh, Bishop Richard Pace has requested the same for all parties in the diocese. Thus, during Lent, nobody will be drinking communion wine nor shaking hands uh, during the sign of the peace. Uh, this one parishioner said she raised both hands for the offering of peace and said, no offense, peace be with you. And we continued uh, mass. And and so I think this is going on. Obviously, this article is about the Catholic Church, uh, but I think I've been hearing a lot of things going on in Protestant churches, too. People just taking some precautions. I know uh, you know, there, there's been a couple cases of the coronavirus, not much, but uh, people, I think, are genuinely and legitimately scared of the coronavirus, the flu, everything we're seeing on TV and seeing reported. Uh, I think now it's, it's seeping into our churches, probably into our schools, and uh, it's going to be real interesting to see where this goes, because there's got to be, you know, it'll be interesting to see how much this butts up against our regular life. What do you think? Here's the thing. We've never done, and I've never experienced, I don't know if it's just me going to non-denominational church. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We've never experienced a communal chalice. True. It makes me wonder, like, why is... you're, you're going to sound very you're going to sound very non-denominational here. <laughs> Go ahead. Why is this news? <laughs> Why is go, moving from one way of taking communion to another newsworthy? Is it that big of a deal? And I'm legitimately asking, is yeah. it a big deal? It is a big deal because of how it's been done for hundreds and hundreds of years and it's the way the Catholic Church does it, but um yeah, I, I think the biggest deal of this is churches going, "Hey, we've got to take some steps of precaution." And uh, help out our people. With that in mind, at Christian Day, Ed Stetzer wrote an interesting article uh, entitled Coronavirus Christians and the Christ-Centered Response. And uh, he starts the article, which you can find on our Facebook page, talking all about the background of the coronavirus, how it spread. And then he says this, I'm no healthcare expert, but I'm a minister of the gospel, and we have a place to go for any and all crises, including a health issue like this. The place is described in the word of God, which reminds us where to put our hope. For believers, this is a good day to remember that our hope is not in what we save or even in our physical health. Neither the markets nor our current health status provides the source of our identity. Psalm 20, verse 7 reminds us, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. Uh, This is critical, Stetzer writes, to hold to when fear threatens to grab hold of our hearts. Our God is not surprised by a viral outbreak. He is not disinterested in our fears. He is our rock, our light, and our salvation. This might be a good time to look forward 
uh, toward our Psalter instead of our newsfeed for support. As American Christians, we are accustomed to power and security. Suddenly, as the possibility for reversal becomes greater, it is how we respond in times when we feel powerless and vulnerable that may offer the opportunity for growth for us to witness to others uh, we say we long for. Jesus told us to let our light shine in a dark world, and our response in a time like this may be such a time to shine. He keeps going. The history of the church abounds with examples of the church stepping into darkness of suffering to shine as lights. Maybe this is what we're about to face. We don't know. Uh, but as we look back on history, sociologist Ron D. Stark explored one such example where during a plague in AD 251, as it swept through the Roman Empire, uh, decimating the population. In his Easter letter around AD 260, Dionysus wrote a tribute to the believers whose heroic efforts cost many of them their own lives. Dionysus wrote, the best of our brothers uh, lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen winning high commendation so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. Uh, he, uh, Stetzer goes on to say, during the fall of 1793, yellow fever gripped the city of Philadelphia. Historian Richard Newman writes that from the moment it began, the yellow fever epidemic was a public health crisis. Thousands fled. Hospitals became overwhelmed. Dead bodies rotted in homes. Within this crisis, it was the emerging black church under the leadership of Richard Allen, which entered into uh, the suffering. Uh, Stetzer then goes on to write at the end. Through both examples, we're reminded that the gospel calls us to live sacrificially in the face of crises, that although fear can threaten to flood our hearts and tempts us to isolate and hoard, scripture anchors our hope in a God who is greater than the pain we endure in this life. History reveals how more than storms we must weather, uh, how more than storms we must weather. There are windows of opportunity to minister in times of calamity in doing so. We testify to the truth that world that this world is not our home. We are citizens of another. For now, let's rest in the truth of the word that we may be ready if history repeats itself. That's Ed Stetzer at Christianity, Christianity Today, Coronavirus Christians, and the Christ-centered response. And the, the question is, and we talked about it in, in the first segment, where's our hope going to be? What is going to be our message as our, as our culture and our world possibly here get more and more frightened mm-hmm. uh, by the coronavirus? Uh, where is it that we are going to look for our hope, but also what does it look like for the church to be a beacon of hope to a culture that is looking for hope? So that's at our Facebook page. We would love uh, your feedback. Coming up next, uh, a conversation, a thoughts about big church, small church, does size determine health? That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Thank you for joining us on this Monday. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Find us on Twitter at Common Good Talk. You can find us online at 1160hope.com. And as always, uh, you can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review. As I've said before, oh, first of all, let me make sure you know Ian Simpkins not with us today. Ian will be back later this week, and we're excited uh, for that. Uh, 
Uh, as I've told you many times, both Ian and I are pastors. I'm a lead pastor at Four Corners Community Church in Darien, uh, kind of South Downers Grove area. Uh, Ian uh, is a pastor at uh, Community Christian Church at the Yellow Box in Naperville. And uh, so we like to think about uh, church and, and all the kind of things that surround it. And I found a tweet that, well, quite frankly, was... Uh, really short and really, really convicting to me. This is from John Tyson. He wrote, Dear Church Planter, but this could really go for any pastor. Dear Pastor, uh, it's not a competition. And man, I can't tell you how often or how difficult it is for many of us as pastors not to see church as competition. To be like, oh, my church is bigger than yours or doing better stuff than yours. And uh, we all want to be reminded of uh, the fact that... um, you know, we're on the same team, you know, your church, my church, church down the, up the road. We're on the same team trying to accomplish the same stuff and that it is stronger when we work together when there is unity. So I just saw that tweet and was like, oh, that one cut to the core. This it is not a competition. But uh, at his blog, God Centered Life, uh, Josh Moody, uh, who is the pastor at College Church in Wheaton, wrote a uh, a great post called Big Church, Small Church, Does Size Determine Health? Big Church, Small Church, Does Size Determine Health? And so he's going to talk a little bit about what it makes for a healthy church and a strong church and then give us uh, some indicators. But let me read to you his background here of what he talks about. He says, nowadays, some feel that if a church is big, it carries a greater risk of unhealth than if it were small. A few years ago, the reverse assumption pertained. Many people assumed that if a church was big, then it was proof that it must be doing something right and therefore healthy and spiritually vital. Those were the days of the primetime emphasis on church growth and megachurch expansion. You will find people who continue to uphold the big is good mantra for all successful churches. But these days, there are also those who think of big churches as carrying some sort of inevitable risk. Who's really in charge? How are decisions made? How do people not get lost in the crowd? But you can have bad small churches as much as you can have good big churches and vice versa. Moody writes, size alone is not a determinative factor. I've been involved in very large churches, small churches, mid-sized churches. What determines the health or spiritual vitality of a church is not nearly the number of people who attend. What matters are factors like these, the presence of faithful Bible teaching, godly maturity of leaders, and so on. Uh, In fact, what were the size of the churches of Asia that Jesus wrote to in Revelation 2 through 3? Your guess is as good as mine. What then should we be looking for in a church if it is not merely a question of size? Moody now is going to give us a list, and it's a really helpful list as someone who has been, Moody, Josh Moody, been a pastor of many different sized churches. As he said, he has great history in this. He says, this, these are the things that you should be looking for in a church. These are the sign of a healthy church. And he's clear to say this is not an exhaustive list, but I'd be curious what you out there think about this list. Does this play into uh, your uh, how you determine a healthy church? So number one, he says, is the Bible being taught? Does the pastor open the Bible, preach from the Bible, teach the Bible? Uh, the primary question then is whether the Bible is being taught from the pulpit in children's programs, youth ministries, and small groups. So number one, is the Bible being taught? Number two, is the doctrinal statement orthodox? Uh, If you're not sure what would make a doctrinal statement orthodox and sound, compare the doctrinal statement 
of the church you're looking for with the biblical summaries of the Christian faith. Look, for instance, at 2 Timothy 1, 9 through 10 or 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Compare the doctrinal statement of the church with some of the historic confessions of the Christian faith. Consider uh, the New Hampshire Confession if you're a Baptist or the Westminster Confession if you're a Presbyterian or the 39 Articles if you're an Anglican is the doctrinal statement of your church uh, orthodox. Number three, is there a ministry structure whereby there is mutual accountability and appropriate authority given to a leadership, given to leadership, the elders and the pastors, so that they can get things done, but also look after each other too? Church leaders need to be able to make decisions without it taking forever, but there must be breaks as well as an accelerator, accountability as well as enterprise to prevent going in the wrong direction. Disagreement and tension among Christian leaders is nothing new. You can read that in Acts 16. Uh, But Christian leaders are to emulate Jesus's model of humble service and concluding with Jesus's famous statement that even the son of man came to be came to serve and not to serve to give his life as a ransom for many is the ministry structure whereby there is mutual accountability and appropriate authority. Next one. Is there a spirit of prayer Throughout the congregation, are there prayer meetings? Do small groups pray? Is there a special season of prayer? Does the congregation pray? Right. The early church was marked not only by commitment to teaching, but also by fervent reliance on God's power through prayer. Churches that make much of God's word can sometimes make little of prayer. But a biblical emphasis is a joint commitment to God's word and to prayer. Next one. These are the signs of a healthy church, written by Josh Moody. Is there a passion for missions and evangelism? Is this a church that is concerned to reach the world? Is this church following the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations? Is there a desire to witness to Jesus in their Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth? Is there a passion for missions and evangelism? And the last one on Josh Moody's list here is, is Christ-like love present in this congregation? Do you sense the work of the spirit to generate increased godliness as evidenced by the spirit fruit of the spirit is the church showing the sign of being Christ's disciples that Christ himself taught namely love. And he goes on to say, I could go on. There's not one exhaustive list. The point is that you are looking for a congregation that has both a sound doctrine and a sound life. No church is perfect. In fact, the old joke that if you find a perfect church, don't join it or you'll spoil it is worth retelling. But this is for sure. Size alone is not determinative. Determinative. You can have a big and a good church or a small and a good church. Likewise, you can have a small and bad church. Some churches are small for a reason. They chase off any real converts pretty quickly. Other big churches have grown beyond their health. Most of all, remember this. Truth in life, word in practice, doctrine in love, content and character. When you find a church that is approximating to those biblical norms of true doctrine and Christ-like practice, then join in and pray that God would continue to add to that church those uh, who are being saved. That is a, a great post written by Josh Moody, the lead pastor at College Church uh, in Wheaton. And it, it makes for an interesting discussion because in our culture, for some reason, especially in the Chicagoland area, the bigger the church, the more notoriety it gets and the more people, I think, wrongly assume that that church is healthy. That might be breaking away because of the things we've seen at Harvest and the things we've seen at Willow. But as a pastor, I can still tell you that the, sim- the number one question I get 
every single time when I tell people I'm a pastor is how big's your church? Hundred, uh, I would say maybe not a hundred, 99% of the time. How big is your church? And that makes pastors go, oh, I better do everything I can to make my church bigger. Uh, but people out there, I would, I would tell you this, that as Moody wrote here, uh, there are really healthy big churches. There are really unhealthy big churches. There are really healthy small churches. There are really unhealthy small churches. But in fact, some of the best pastors I know, pastor churches of under 100, 100 people, and we have to kind of get away from the mindset that says the bigger the church, uh, the more impressive uh, the pastor or the church, uh, the more healthier that that church is. So love to know your feedback. You can do so at the Common Good Radio Show on Facebook. Coming up next, an article out of Christianity Today, uh, evangelism uh, and technology. That's going to come up next here on the Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Hope you're having a good Monday. As we said earlier in the show, it's National Egg McMuffin Day. So how could you ever have a bad National Egg McMuffin Day? And you might be going, oh, what is this National Egg McMuffin Day you speak of? Well, download the McDonald's app. Go to McDonald's and you get a free Egg McMuffin. And that will make, no matter how how bad your day has been. And here's the thing. Going to make for a good day. Since... Since a couple years ago, you can get an Egg McMuffin whenever you want. Yes, you can. You don't have to, you know, wait till the morning or you like pray you get up in time to go. I don't eat at McDonald's as much as I once did, but a couple years ago, you know, one a really weird thing. I used to eat at McDonald's all the time, uh, and regularly for dinner, I'd get an Egg McMuffin. But you know why? Were I stopped? you significantly larger than you are now? Uh, not significantly, but it did, <laughs> it did not help. Let's put it that way. Do you know why I stopped eating at McDonald's? Why? Uh, I stopped eating at McDonald's because I stopped drinking Diet Coke in general in my uh, life about five years Diet ago. Coke, I hear, and that legends. is the, that is the reason I used to go to McDonald's because, bar none, this is an indisputable fact uh. that the greatest Diet Coke in the world. Is every is a McDonald's fountain? Sure, my uh, mom. My mom is a Diet Coke fanatic. Oh, as well. and so I would make I would make purposeful trips to go buy a McDonald's so that I could get a Diet Coke. And yeah. when you're in line, you're like, "Hey, I'll have an Egg McMuffin as well." <laughs> and uh, uh, I'll have a large fry as well. Yeah, uh, Super uh, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, as long as not? I get that uh, that Diet Coke. And so once I cut Diet Coke out, I never go to McDonald's uh, anymore. And uh, that's more than you needed to know about my eating well, habits. But it, you know, it, it, vulnerability in in the radio business is always uh, a plus. Can I tell you something that is might be borderline inappropriate, but um, <laughs> but no one's listening. <laughs> is sure. uh, But I've always found funny in an ironic way and also a sad way. Where I live, I live in Downers Grove, right off of Ogden Avenue. Okay. Uh, Right off of 355 there in Ogden, there is a Culver's, Mm -hmm. which we frequent. Across the street from it, there is the McDonald's. So you've got them right there next door to the McDonald's, literally sharing a parking lot, is a childhood obesity center. (gasps) Oh, no. Come on. Yep. Is that funny or sad? Which is that? I off the air. I, 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 I it, it's kind of like putting chocolate in the tampon aisle at a store. It's product placement. Sort I don't, of. That, that but you I think chose, it's just ironic. you really chose some interesting ones there. But it's it's it. They know something that we wouldn't otherwise. Yeah. See, but then you look at it, you're like, wait a second. Yeah. So there is uh, those putting those together. It's always kind of sad, but every now and then on Facebook, what you'll do you see think people came first. 
Uh, I know what came first is the childhood center clinic that's right there. Oh, so this is yes. McDonald's coming in and playing being like, a little game. I don't here. care. We're going to wow. put this right there. Yeah, Culver's across the street. And so, yeah. I, Ugh, I don't okay. know if it's ironically sad or ironically funny, but probably a little bit of both. Uh, hey, let me tell you something exciting going on here at AM 1160. We're excited to welcome songwriter and recording artist Andrew Peterson to Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church on Friday night, March the 27th, for the first stop on the 2020 Resurrection Letters Tour. Don't miss your chance to see Andrew Peterson in concert. Tickets start at just $25, and VIP tickets are available for $49 and include a pre-concert question and answer with Andrew. Group discounts are available for groups of 10 or more. So get your tickets today at 1160hope.com. That is 1160hope.com. We would love to have you join us uh, for that concert. I've never seen Andrew Peterson concert, but everybody who has that I know of uh, are huge fans. And they're all like, oh, you've got to see this guy. So uh, that is on Friday night, March 27th. Get your tickets at 1160hope.com. Well, Christianity Today... Uh, this article, Evangelism Formation, Our Treasure, Our Technology, and Our Togetherness. The article begins this way. There's never been a better time to share the gospel. We have the best distribution channels in the world for the best message in the world, modeled by the best savior in the world. Evangelism doesn't need to be a cold religious word loaded with obligation. So here are three ways we have an opportunity to engage in evangelism today. So the premise of the article is this, that that with technology, these new doors have been opened up. And so here are ways, three ways to take advantage and engage in evangelism today. First, reaching the world with a single click. It's never been easier to reach the world with the gospel. We live in the age of information distribution and technological advancement that rivals the impact of the printing press. Technology is making the gospel available to people around the world like never before. For instance, back in 2018, churches in the Twin Cities uh, came together for a massive outreach at U.S. Bank Stadium. More than 8,800 people responded to the gospel, with 5,700 of those responding by text. That night, we held 2,000 live conversations with attendees via text message. Smartphone saturation is demanding new and creative avenues for the gospel. For the first time ever in 2019, the average American spent more time on their smartphones than their TVs. So the article goes on to say, today, we have an incredible opportunity to reach people through texting, through apps, YouTube, and social media. Number one, reaching the world with a single click. It says technology will never change the principles of evangelism, but it does give us new ways to share the message with more people. Number two, uh, a song amid noise. The author writes, but there's a problem. We can share a message with the world with the click of a button, but so can anyone else. The technological revolution amplified not only our voice, but also the voice of any individual group or business with a keyboard. The moment we put our message into the World Wide Web, we're instantly competing for attention of individuals who are peppered with messages all day long. Uh, at a time when businesses are collectively spending $100 billion on ad online advertising, what chance does the gospel have? The answer, an incredible one. Let's not forget the treasure that we hold. The gospel is the greatest message ever told to humanity. It's a message for anyone to recognize their brokenness and their need. It's good news. The gospel is a beautiful thing, and we should endeavor to show the gospel for the marvel that it is. And number three, uh, coming together. 
finally, let's use technology to bring people together around the gospel and our lives. The millennial generation has been called the lonely generation. And 30% of those between the ages of 23 and 38 say they feel lonely, quote, often or always. For all the time we spend looking at our phones, people still have an aching need for human connection and community. What if we use technology to bring people together? This starts with you. Each of us have friends we can text, direct message on Instagram or Snapchat. We can use technology to invite our friends and neighbors into community with us as a way to encourage and share the gospel. You're not alone in this either. Efforts like Go 2020 are rallying the world toward a month of evangelism and outreach in May of this year. In June, uh, tens of thousands are gathering in D.C. at Together 2020. And this this June at the Amplify Wheaton Conference uh, will be held at Wheaton College. These efforts are meant to catalyze us, to show us that we're not alone, and to highlight ways at which we can run toward the Great Commission in our digital age. And the author ends this, I want to encourage you to use technology as a catalyst for evangelism. Maybe that means starting a YouTube channel or sharing testimonies of lives changed by the gospel. Maybe it means building an app to encourage personal discipleship among a few people. Or maybe it means sending a text to your unbelieving friend and asking if they'd be interested in coming over for dinner. However you choose to engage, don't neglect the gift of technology offers us for creative and effective evangelism. As D.L. Moody once was quoted as saying, I like my way of doing evangelism better than your way of not doing it. So let's start somewhere. That's it. Christianity Today, a really uh, thought-provoking article about where, uh, in what ways can we use technology to share the gospel. You can find that on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, speaking of technology, coming up next, we are going to talk about uh, an opinion piece written by Jim Daly about kids and smartphones. That's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey everyone, Ian Simpkins here, and after we had this marriage conference with Thrivent and two other local churches, it kind of piqued my interest to learn more about this organization. We had such a good response with them at the conference, I was kind of interested in seeing what else they did, and so they actually provided me with this list of like 12 or 13 different topics that they offer free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously, and the thing that was crazy is that each of these topics were things that people in my church were actually asking me, things that I didn't really know how to talk about. And so they offered numerous free workshops for the people in our church to help them be wise with money and to live generously. And let me tell you, it was this really beautiful sort of no strings attached kind of a, we want to help you do this better. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with Thrivent and being really grateful for the ways that they were coming alongside us and the local churches around us. And if you're interested at all in learning more, I cannot encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. Coming up in this hour of The Common Good, we're going to talk about smartphones and teenagers. Uh, we're going to talk about money and health. You are listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. I'm looking forward to being able to see saying uh, joined by Ian Simpkins, but he is not in this week. Uh, he is in later this week. He's not in today. Uh, we are 
anxiously awaiting Ian's return. He's been, I believe, at grad school all week. And so he is going to come back so smart. I'm just going to turn the mic on and be like, just teach us. Just teach us. Uh, because that's what happens when you go to grad school. So, uh, But in all seriousness, we are excited for Ian to return. And uh, But until that time, we're going to keep holding down the fort. Joined by my producer, John, on the other side. Of, I've always wanted to say on the other side of the glass, right? That's what people always there say in the radio business. There are multiple layers of glass. There's on the other side of two layers of glass in the hallway. I feel like I'm in like an ISO booth. Like <laughs> I have the coronavirus or something. But Well, now, why'd you have to go there? That's, that was dark. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, from one coronavirus joke, we're going to keep moving. <laughs> to another coronavirus no, joke? No coronavirus jokes. Oh, okay. Right, we're done. Uh, okay, but if you want to relive that joke, you could do so on our, on our podcast. Which joke you is find. a stretch. It, was, it wasn't a joke. Nah, that's it good. Was, you can find good. our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Go ahead, subscribe, and rate and review. Uh, we'd be excited for you to do that. You can hear old shows. Last week, when Ian wasn't here, we were able to bring through all sorts of great ministry leaders, pastors, authors, and uh, really was an enjoyable week, and we would love for you to listen to those. And you can do that online at 1160hope.com. You can also do it by our podcast. And what we ask you to do is to subscribe to the podcast, rate it, review it. And uh, as Ian always says, that helps us somehow. We're not sure, but we do know that it helps us. And uh, so go ahead and do that. Jim Daly, who if you listen to the station at all, you are very familiar with. Jim Daly leads Focus on the Family and uh, has a has a daily show, no pun intended, here on AM 1160. Um, but Jim Daly wrote a, uh, an opinion piece that was up at Fox News uh, on their website, foxnews.com. And uh, and so it had a, a, a lot of um, activity around it. And it says this. Why is why this is the best time to give your child a smartphone? Uh, so here we go. Let me read this article, because I think some of you are going to hear this and go. I totally agree with this. Others of you are going to hear this and be like, I couldn't disagree more. But this is a huge topic for all of us as parents, especially out there. When do our children uh, when do we put them on our plan, right? When do we give them our smartphone? I've got three kids. I've got a, a sophomore in high school, a sixth grader, and a fifth grader. Uh, my two younger kids are not on our plan. They, they have phones, our old phones, but they can only use them on Wi-Fi. But my older daughter, my oldest, she is on our plan. And the reason we did that was we did that when she started babysitting. And we wanted her. We started leaving her in charge of our kids. And we wanted to be able to be in contact with her. Especially considering we don't have a home phone. And so, um, you know, this is a question that all of us parents that I know are are having conversations about and trying to figure out when to give your kid a smartphone and when to give them full access. And what are the boundaries that you put around it, even uh, as they're in uh, high school and as they're getting older? Okay, so here we go. Let me read this article and then we'll comment on it a little bit. And I'm curious what you all out there think. Uh, the new the new cure, Jim Daly writes, for smartphone addiction, buying a second phone. The cyber guy, uh, Kurt Knutson, on the new cure uh, for smartphone addiction. He says, according to a recent survey, over half of American children have smartphones by the time they're 11 years old and 84% by the age of 13. But is that a good idea, Jim Daly writes? And then he answers his own question. He says, I don't think so. 
the proliferation of smartphones has fundamentally transformed adolescence for our nation's youth in ways big and small. Now the culture will tell you it's no big deal for a teen to have full access to a smartphone or that it's an absolute necessity for safety's sake in this current cultural environment. I beg to differ. Jim Daly writes, my wife and I have two boys, one now in college and the other a junior in high school as president of a family help organization and host of a national radio show dispensing practical advice. I'm regularly asked about the right age to allow your child to have their own phone. I'll tell you what I always say. Hold off for as long as you possibly can. In case you haven't noticed, children don't all mature at the same rate or in the same manner. Uh, my wife, this is still Jim Daly writing, and I wound up waiting to give phones to our boys until they were 17 and 15, respectively. Yes, they, bo- they voiced frustration from time to time, but it always passed rather quickly. Because technology seems to be evolving at the speed of sound. So resist the urge to check out and assume you know enough. From secret photo vault apps to seemingly innocuous terminology, it's impossible for you to know what you don't know. So by delaying giving them phones as long as we did, our boys avoided being caught up in the middle of numerous texting and other smartphone-related dramas within their circle of friends. They also avoided the inevitable distraction that accompanies every phone, regardless of how disciplined the user might be. So what age is best for you and your kids to cross the cell phone Rubicon? To help you determine exactly when the right time might be for you and your child, here's a three-point checklist that Jim Daly gives us. Number one, make sure your child knows how to reason and think. Our kids grow very weary very quickly when we lecture them. So don't just teach. Ask questions about to get them, him or her, to think and apply their own mental reasoning and breaks about their use of technology. Help them think through the consequences of their choices. Critical thinking isn't just one of the keys to being responsible with a smartphone. It's essential for long-term success in life. Number two, provide your kids with clear boundaries around technology use. During the teenage years, your son or daughter is less capable of long-term thinking, so they may have less of a braking system when excitement and arousal occurs. As one of our organization's counselors explained to me, that experience causes a surge of dopamine, a neurotransmitter in the brain that in turn causes the child to get hooked on the use of the phone and pursue further risks in this area. You can help your child avoid this uh, chain reaction by limiting and filtering their access to smartphones and the Internet. For example, you could get your child a dumb phone, a phone that does nothing more than send and receive calls. You can require a phone to stay in your room overnight. So you can review all the content daily and also help your teen avoid the temptation of texts in the wee hours of the morning. Parental controls exist to help you limit their texting and monitor their phone use. And number three, these are Jim Daly's kind of checklist for when do you believe your kids are ready for a smartphone? Number three, stay up to date with trends. Technology seems to be evolving at the speed of sound. Uh, So resist the urge. Uh, Consider monitoring that apps your child puts on their device today. Kids can hide their online actions from parents through the use of Internet acronyms. While we know LOL means laughing out loud, most mom and dads don't realize that for some kids, GNOC means get naked on camera or PIR means parent in room. So mom and dad, don't rush the process or allow yourself to be pressured. Don't fear technology either. As it is, receiving text messages and calls from my sons is now one of the highlights of my day proving that the same technology that can cause grief can also elicit joy if it's managed 
responsibly. That is at foxnews.com. We'll put it up on our Facebook page, Jim Daly from Focus on the Family, about uh, kind of three checklists for when you as a family are ready to give your kids uh, cell phones and smartphones. For us, again, uh, we crossed that divide when our daughter started babysitting and uh, we felt the need to be greater connected to her. Uh, but all of my kids, even the ones who just have some very basic apps with um, with being uh, tied to the Internet, with being tied um, to wireless, uh, they know that there is no part of the phone that we are not ever going to be allowed to see. And that at any point, my wife and I can just pick up their phone and that we have to know all passwords and we can look. But as Daly points out, sometimes our kids are smarter than us. And that is a real fear and something that needs to be talked about. I think in the end, what this comes down to is the trust that you've built with your child and not just the trust, but the ability to have these kinds of conversations. And, uh, you know, it was the same way when I was a kid, but with different things. If you're going to get in trouble, you're going to try to get around your parents. And so as parents, the goal from us at an early age is to keep those lines of communication open with our children, to keep the right boundaries and barriers set up, but to also parent them through how do we use our phones and things like that. But it's really hard. And we would love to know your uh, your ideas. You can do so at Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. We'll put up this article written by Jim Daly. Well, coming up next, we're going to look at a blog written by one of our favorite pastors, Scott Sauls. Uh, he wrote a blog called On Money, Sickness, and Getting Healthy with Wealth. That's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Monday evening. Hopefully you're driving home from work. You've had a good day, but one day of the work week is down, and now you're heading into the middle of the week. And uh, yeah, you know what hit me last night, John, uh, or yesterday at church, that uh, that we are full-fledged towards Easter now. I know we're in the midst of Lent, and uh, but it's the first time I went like, oh, Easter's coming, and I love Easter. We just love Easter, love and... Uh, I referenced it in my sermon yesterday, just going like, this is what is going to make Easter so good in a couple weeks. We got to get through uh, the weeks to there. You know, there's there's great value in like sitting in Lent and sitting in Good Friday. And so we don't want to blow past that. Mm. But you got that carrot of Easter hanging out Mm -hmm. there. And I I got excited yesterday, like going, oh, wait, Easter's coming. Spring's coming. It's all good stuff. I see what you did there. Carrot. Mm. Easter bunny. Oh, that's that's no, that was not the intention at all. Well done, that's not the intention at all. But hey, if you want to give that to me, I'll take it. I'll give that to you. I'll take it. You good. makes up for my bad joke in the first. Does not does not make up for it at (laughs) all. Uh, You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show online. Eleven sixty hope dot com. Twitter at Common Good Talk. Get our podcast. You can get it anywhere. Anywhere you get your podcast. Uh, search the Common Good Radio Show. Uh, you'll see our smiling faces and go ahead and subscribe, rate, and uh, review. So if you've been around this show for any amount of time over the last 13 or 14 months that we've been doing this, there is a pastor out of Nashville, Tennessee, who we quote often, and his name is Scott Sauls. Uh, Scott Sauls is the lead pastor of a church called, I believe it's Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville. And uh, we'll quote his tweets, but what we quote more is he is prolific at kind of keeping up on his blog. And uh, we're going to have him on someday. Someday it's going to happen, man. Uh, But Saul's wrote just this past week uh, a blog post entitled this on money, sickness and getting healthy with wealth. And I just want to read 
this blog to you because money is such a big deal in our culture, and it's a really big deal for us as believers. Jesus himself talked about money. Uh, some people say upwards of a quarter of the time of the recorded words in the gospel. And uh, that if Jesus is going to talk about money uh, this often, then we certainly need to. Jesus says bluntly, you can't worship both God and money. And that verse has always haunted me because you would think Jesus would say, you can't worship both God and Satan. <laughs> you can't worship God in the world. Jesus says you can't worship God and money. And uh, we live in a culture that worships money. And so uh, we've got to wrestle with that and we've got to try to work that out as believers because we want to be uh, worshipers of God and not of money. And so Saul's, with that in mind, writes about money, sickness and getting healthy with wealth. He says, a friend once told me that his boss, a hedge fund manager, routinely drank bottles of wine valued at twenty five thousand dollars. I don't like drinking wine. I don't like when my wife buys wine that's more than ten dollars. <laughs> so twenty five thousand dollars. Saul's writes, my initial reaction to this information was to be appalled by the hedge fund manager's excess. I told my friend that I could never enjoy a glass of wine from such a costly bottle with each sip. How does anyone justify spending that kind of money on a bottle of wine? Then I remembered how easy it is to point the finger at someone else's excess. I remembered how easy it is to forget that I, yes, I am one of the world's wealthiest and by relative terms, most habitually excessive human beings. Over half of the world lives on less than $2.50 per day. Sometimes I spend twice that on a cup of coffee and four times that on an appetizer. So my initial self-righteousness about the hedge fund owner led me to start asking what people living on less than $2.50 per day would think about my spending on eye things and my Ford Mustang and my children's education and my dog's groomer and the two amazing guitars that I own but will never be able to play better than a mediocre man uh, amateur. What would they think of my retirement account of the $30 bottle of wine or the $200 pair of boots I recently purchased for myself? By the way, this isn't about guilt at all, he writes. I hate guilt because guilt is a terrible motivator. Guilt doesn't stick like grace and love do. But sometimes it's good to inventory, to have a bit of a gut check, to gain some perspective on things. Why, I must ask myself, am I so bothered by a $25,000 bottle of wine relative to my own income? And why am I not bothered by my $30 bottle of wine relative to the income of more than half of the world's population? You see, the subject of wealth in the Bible isn't as cut and dried as we might think. The Bible is filled with affirm, uh, affirmation toward people who are both poor and rich. Jesus praised the poor widow who gave away her last two coins. Blessed are the poor, he said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But God also praised Solomon when he prayed for wisdom and rewarded him with wisdom and a mother load of wealth. Abraham had more cattle than anyone and was the father of the faithful. Job was the most blameless man in the world and also the most wealthy. In the new heaven and the new earth, the streets occupied by many mansions our father is preparing for us will be paved with gold. Having wealth or not having wealth is never the chief concern of Jesus. Rather, what matters is where we locate our treasure. The Lord says, I'm, I am your share and inheritance, your shield, your very great reward. We aren't told that it's impossible to have God and money at the same time, but we are told that it's impossible to love and serve God and money at the same time. So money sickness or greed is equated with an inordinate, inordinate love for money, not the possession of it. Greed is not about having money as much as it is about money having us. It's tricky, don't you think? So back to the $25,000 bottle of wine. 
See, greed, my greed, almost always traces back to dissatisfaction with what I have or don't have in comparison with others. Is this also true of you? A five-figure wage earner is bothered by the relative affluence of the six-figure wage earner in their life. Similarly, the six-figure wage earner is bothered by the relative affluence of the seven-figure wage earner in his life. If we want to solve the problem of greed, we have to look at ourselves first. Where am I money sick? Do I see my own susceptibility to greed? In what ways as has an innocent enjoyment of God's material blessings morphed into a possessive love for money? Have I somehow become zealous to remove specks from the eyes of hedge fund managers while missing the log in my own? These are safe questions to ask. You know, God has grace for greedy people, too. Once we reach a certain age, medical experts recommend a full annual physical because certain diseases can only be detected through careful examination. It is possible to feel perfectly healthy and have a life-threatening disease at the same time. So it is with money sickness or greed. So how do we identify greed? I think there are two chief symptoms we need to be on the lookout for. One, hoarding money for ourselves beyond wise planning for the future. Two, Spending money almost exclusively on ourselves, especially on things we do not need in order to fill a hole in our heart or to impress others. Hoarding is about trusting in money in order to feel safe. Spending almost exclusively on ourselves is about trusting in money to feel important or validated. In other words, have we moved from having wealth to anchoring our hope in wealth? See, Jesus gives us what money cannot. Some of the world's wealthiest people Saul's rights have experienced letdown when they hit their coveted number. Having made billions in the oil industry, John D. Rockefeller was once asked how much money was enough. His answer, one more dollar. Or there's the great quarterback, Tom Brady, who after winning three Super Bowls, marrying the world's top supermodel and having a household income of $76 million per year, said that this couldn't be all that there is, that there had to be something more. Actor and comedian Jim Carrey said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they've ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. See, Jesus is the answer to our quest for safety, validation, not money. When a healthy relationship with money turns into a fixation upon or controlling fears about money, when enjoyment of material things turns into materialism, our souls shrink and we feel empty. When our souls derive safety and validation from Jesus, We take on his generous self-giving love. We don't hoard money or spend it solely on ourselves. We also develop habits of joyfully giving it it away. We spend on the flourishing of others. As we do, we find it is more blessed to give than to receive. Whether we have a little or we have a lot, we must be on guard against all kinds of greed and to resist the pull toward hoarding on the one hand and overspending on the other. This involves discerning where we are relying on wealth to do for us what only Jesus can, inviting our friends to speak into our lives and examining our relationship with money against the scriptures and what scripture says about how we are to earn it, save it, spend it, and give it. And as we do, perhaps we too will have joy because we need him more. That is a challenging word today on money sickness and getting healthy with wealth. You can find that at scottsauls.com. That's S-A-U-L-S, scottsauls.com. You can also find it on our Facebook page. Friends, Jesus talks so much about money because it is such a big deal in our lives and even more so in our culture. So let me encourage you to go and read that blog and we would love to have your feedback. Well, speaking of money, uh, a Cincinnati megachurch did something amazing 
with some of their money. We're going to discuss that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you joining us today on this Monday evening. Uh, spring, it's not it's not heat yet, but you can kind of see it, right? You can kind of feel it. Like you turn on your TV and baseball's on, although I'm not getting the Cubs network at the moment, apparently. Uh, but you can, you can you know, baseball's on, and, mm. and it's March, and so the NCAA tournament's coming. And, March Madness? And, all, you know, spring sports are coming, and... Uh, signed my daughter up for softball the there other day. Go. And so in the weather is 55 degrees yesterday. And so it's starting to come. Remind us, mark this down and uh, play this again when we get six inches of snow sometime in the next two or three it's, weeks. It's going to happen. Oh, there. my gosh. I remember seeing this meme. It shows it's a it's a sequence of seasons in Chicago. And there's uh, there's winter, second winter, <laughs> false spring, third winter, actual spring, Summer, spring again, like and it has there's an arrow about where we Third are winter. in this thing. Yeah, because that's there's that's a, why I would love to be a weatherman in Chicago. I would a, love to get paid eight million, nine million dollars a year just to be like, oh, you know, that's lake effect. Oh, they're yeah. there for entertainment purposes only. Come on, <laughs> Skilling. The, he's he's the anomaly. Skilling announced. Did you see this weekend? He announced that he's having gastric bypass surgery. He's gonna good, be out good for, for a while. Him. Yeah, yeah. That guy has I made a, well. That guy has made a career. Yeah. And uh, yeah, him, Taft, Amy Freeze, all yeah, those. Yeah, yeah. And I think that uh, uh, there's there, there's another snowstorm coming at some point. At some point, if it's a flurry, I'll be I'll be like, all right, it may as well happen because it's snowed in May before. Yeah, I remember like two weeks with him. My birthday's May thirteenth, and it's like it's been very cold. Your birthday's May thirteenth. My daughter is May twelfth. My wife is May fifteenth. I'm May fourth. We're all right in there. My sister's May tenth. There you go. So wow. I have a sister in law who's May tenth. See. What? Spring is sprung. The season. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, the season. season of life. Come on. <laughs> and so again, remember this when it's 25 and snowing. And we'll, we'll, <laughs> I'm just going to embrace it right now. I'm not we'll, even thinking about it's that. It's coming. Cubs opening weekend probably going to be snow. It's always oh. the White Sox where it snows because they can't get to break. <laughs> <laughs> and Milwaukee's like, we're just going to build a dome. Oh, that was so just smart of the them. Roof. That was so smart of them. It was. Can I tell you how excited I am for baseball season? Oh, I, tell me about it. So... Excited. I love it. And my Mets, I think, ah, cr- knock on wood, cross my fingers, all this, because mm-hmm. they could easily underperform and come in fourth place. But I think they got a shot this year. They and got the, the pitchers. They oh, got the Jacob hitters. DeGrom, man. Come on. He's looking at a third Pete straight. Alonzo. Third straight Cy Young. I'm calling and, it. And I, I, this is going to make people angry. I think the, I think the Cubs are, uh, I think they're on a downward trajectory here. How so? They feel it feels like that window is closing. Like uh, uh, their average age is still very young. I don't they like up a couple decent pitchers. I don't they like their a, pitching staff. I I don't either. I think their starting rotation is maybe three strong. I don't. I, Lester, if Lester's one of those, I think you're in trouble because he's got he's old. Hendricks, Quintana, and Darvish. Man, Darvish is looking like the guy. This that week. Quintana deal. I think that yeah, is it wasn't be, good because we, we. I mean, look who we gave up. Yep, yeah, and I also think everyone every year is going to be like. Quintana, and then he's never better than like a four. He'll throw a couple masterful games, but correct. So I don't like your guys. As I say, your guys, your cup fan. I don't yep. like your rotation. I don't like your bullpen. And uh, 
think a pen is better than people think it is. Uh, yeah, I gotta hope because that. we haven't given enough people chances. And our closers—I mean, he came off of an injury and a half season, mm, I but don't he's know. still the greatest active closer right now. As somebody whose team's fortunes the last couple of years, that being the New York Mets, have just been sunk by bad bullpens. Yeah, uh, I've got my fingers crossed. For I also am not sure. I think the the. That back in sixteen and seventeen, the Cubs core, all of them were seen as like great, mm. and I don't, I think that hasn't proved out to be true, right? Not, so, not of recent, but when it was, it proved to be right. absolutely that. But I think this is who Kyle Schwarber is, right? Like I don't think there's a next level. I think no. that you know Addison Russell. I remember them talking about him being a an MVP candidate, and then yeah, things went it. sideways. Yeah. So I think by you know by as Brian and Rizzo got to carry that team and. Yeah, I'm and not they sure will. Contreras. You remember all the Wilson people like Contreras. he's, he's going to be an MVP. Nope, I don't think so. We'll so, see. The injury stopped him, but he was he was on pace to be a 30-30, 300 guy. But you know who is in the right direction? The Chicago White Sox. Yeah, they are. And I'm happy for it's, them. I, I have nothing against the White Sox. I have They're not White, the Cardinals. I have enough White Sox fans who have just been. They're living. not the Phillies. Oh, I don't have. Any, I don't care. I know you do. Hate but. the Nationals. The who won the World Series. Hate them. <laughs> they were Ooh. the underdogs. Though the Phillies oh. always the worst fans. They're just. It's not good. The but, Phillies. Oh my uh, gosh. So now you make me. Let's go Mets. That's what we're saying this year. <laughs> You're going. Go Cubs. Go. I'll go. go let's Cubs, go Mets. Go. And uh, and away we go. Hey, something else exciting for the springtime. Here at AM 1160, we're excited to welcome songwriter and recording artist Andrew Peterson to Elmhurst Christian Reform Church on Friday night, March 27th, for the first stop on the 2020 Resurrection Letters Tour. Don't miss your chance to see Andrew Peterson in concert. Tickets start at just $25, and VIP tickets are available for $49 and include a pre-concert question and answer with Andrew. Group discounts are available for groups of 10 or more, so get your tickets today at 1160hope.com. That is 1160hope.com. We like to highlight things here when we see churches doing pretty unbelievable things. And we've talked about a similar story to the one I'm about to share, uh, but this one just recently came out, and it's about a Cincinnati uh, mega church called Crossroads Church. Uh, and it says this. Crossroads Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, with the help of charity RIP Medical Debt, was able to pay off, listen to this number, $46.5 million in medical debt. The donation came off the heels of a sermon uh, preached last November where the congregation was encouraged to give money to help American families in medical debt. In the last few minutes of the sermon, Pastor uh, Tome had this to say. He said, I want to give us the opportunity to multiply our impact. Do you realize that around Cincinnati, there's $65 million worth of medical debt that's coming due? Uh, he further added that in those debts, that if those debts were set free, they'd receive a letter, for example, saying, congratulations, this debt has been paid because someone loves you and there is a God who has not forgotten about you. The sermon entitled The Marks of Multiplication was streamed online, which caught the eye of additional donors from Ohio, Kentucky, uh, Indiana and Tennessee. Crossroads was able to raise $465,000 in donations. The church then partnered with RIP Medical Debt, which multiplies donation and gives them back to the communities per zip code. According to RIP Medical Debt website, every dollar donated counts as $100 of medical debt paid off by RIP Medical Debt. As such, Crossroads eliminated, helped eliminate $46.5 million in debt. 
The Cincinnati Inquirer reports that $42.8 million was paid for the 41,233 Ohio households spanning 103 zip codes. For 2,974 Kentucky households, $1.9 million was paid off. For 503 Tennessee households, $1.5 million were paid. And for 136 Indiana households, $200,000 was paid back. The Cincinnati Inquirer also noted that church officials kept the campaign off social media. Crossroads Director of Marketing, Brennan Hill, told the outlet, we kept it off social media. We really want it to be about people in our community, like I said, who are currently giving. According to RIP Medical Debt, Crossroads Church was able to help eliminate the largest amount of medical debt in the organization's history. This is just an unbelievable story. Because we all, as churches, we like to think we want to bless our community in a way. And and what I love about this story is uh, it's it's the best of mega churches. Mm -hmm. So it's the best in the sense of raising a lot of money through a lot of people. Uh, But what I also love is they didn't say, and then we're going to pay for it. They went out and they found this organization that could multiply their money, uh, their giving capabilities, to the tune of $46.5 million. And I have no idea how RIP medical debt works. I'd encourage you to Google it. I'm sure you'll figure it out there. But this is, uh, we've now done multiple stories with churches using RIP medical debt. And uh, you've got to remember that for people in our communities, uh, the amount of stress and anxiety that debt, and particularly medical debt, causes. Uh, is astronomical. And so for a church to be able to say, hey, uh, this church didn't say, if you come to our service, we'll pay off your medical debt. If you come for a month, they just said, you know what? We want to bless our community and we're going to send them a letter that says this is how it happened. And uh, bravo to this church. You know, a lot of mega churches get a really bad rap, but this one here saying we're going to do something to bless our community. And it, for me as a pastor, for all of you listening out there who are part of churches, this should challenge us to go, how can we be a blessing to our communities? How can we be a blessing to those around us without an ulterior motive of come to my church? But instead, the motive being we want to be the hands and feet of Jesus and bless you uh, and allow you to know that God has not forgotten you. What a powerful story out of Cincinnati. That's Crossroads Church. Allow it to challenge you. uh, Allow it to remind us of who we are supposed to be as the church. Well, coming up next, we are going to land this plane the way we do every week, uh, every day. Uh, interweb insanity. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. It's Ian Simpkins here. And after I had this experience with Thrivent where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of piqued with regards to what kind of organization this was. And it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link and it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop uh, a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to, to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began, because there was this no strings attached kind of mentality it was just their heart to give back to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously to be wise with money and live generously and that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them and so if you're interested in learning more I can't encourage you enough to head to thrivent.com today here's some weird stuff we found on the internet 
Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Well, that music can only mean one thing, and one thing only. It's the end of the show, Interweb Insanity, uh, where our producer, uh, John, are these from you? Yes. Oh, John has found us stories uh, online, uh, crazy stories from the internet. And uh, I'm going to read them sight unseen. I don't know the story. I don't know the sound effect. Uh, if they're funny, we are laughing along with you. If, well, I don't know uh, them either. I just kind of grab random ones. Oh, <laughs> then, then it's going to be even scarier. So here we go. <laughs> First one is out of Massachusetts. Massachusetts to take master's degree in cannabis science. The American International College announced this month that it will offer a master's degree in cannabis science and commerce starting in the fall semester. It is the first such master's degree in the region, but follows the degree and certificate program introduced in 2019 at AIC and Holyoke Community College with its Cannabis Education Center. AIC's new course is a 30-credit program designed for people interested in a career in the cannabis industry. One of the requirements, according to the website, is a cannabis capstone research project. The college plans to provide students with an understanding of the scientific, commercial, and legal issues associated with the cannabis industry. The program offers education in the areas of basic science, including chemistry, horticulture, cultivation, uses, and delivery systems, business, marketing, and operations management, and federal and state laws and policies. What are you people? (laughs) On dope? That's pretty mild. In my mind, I was like, I I think I know which one's coming. I think I know. It's getting predictable. New Zealand surfer escapes great white shark attack by punching it in the eye. A surfer has recalled the moment he punched a great white shark in the eye after it attacked him and clamped its jaws uh, on his surfboard. Nick Minigue and a friend had driven two hours from Auckland to uh, Pawanai Beach in New Zealand to surf on February 26th. Minigue, 60 years old, said he was about to paddle back to shore when he felt a bang on the left side of his body. From a swell in the water, a shark's head surfaced. I was just paddling along, hoping to come in soon, and got hit on the side of the arm and didn't really know what it was. The next thing I know, there was a shark uh, there, there was a shark chomped over a front section of my board with its big head and eye looking back at me. His first punch uh, hit the shark a few inches below the eye, but the second try, he managed to get a direct hit. I was just fixated on the eye looking back. I didn't want to punch anywhere near its teeth. After the second punch landed, the shark let go of the board. Dude, you got the best barrels ever, dude. Just like you pull in and you just get spit right out of them. And you just drop in and just smack the lip. Whoop! Drop down. Snap. And then after that, you just drop in, just ride the barrel and get pitted. So pitted like that. Little do people know that is an actual clip of you on yeah, summer I, vacation. I, it's, I wish I could surf. I wish I could come even close to surfing. But yeah. Next one, our friends to the north in Wisconsin. Wisconsin woman performs ritual on dead possum in road, tells it to repent, police said. A Wisconsin woman had five pounds of possum in her headlights Monday. That's a great article. That's a great start. That's awesome. According to witnesses in a police report, the woman performed a spiritual ritual on a dead possum in the road. Then pulled out a Green Bay Packers lawn chair from her vehicle and urged the animal to repent. The woman I don't know was how a, those things are related at all. The woman was apparently driving on a Waukesha road when she saw the dead critter. According to witnesses, the woman got out of her vehicle, opened the passenger drawer, and threw goldfish and windshield wiper fluid on the possum. A second person said the woman took out the lawn chair and yelled repent at the dead animal. A person who had been following the woman's vehicle called the police and reported the erratic behavior. According to the police log, the animal, which was not playing possum, 
was removed from the highway. Meg started Psalm 41 and don't stop reading till I tell you. The power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. What was that? What was that? It's family. Okay. All righty. I'm sorry. We like to walk the line here. I'm so sorry. Next one's in Pennsylvania. Mystery smell overwhelms Pennsylvania County again. Again? Investigators baffled. A mysterious stench once again struck parts of Delaware County this week, overwhelming residents with its pungent odor and baffling investigators. The smell has recently been reported in towns across the county, including Glen Olden, Tinicum, and Upper Darby, just outside of Philadelphia. While no one knows what the elusive smell is or where it's coming from, residents say it smells like fuel. It's like a sulfur, smoky. As soon as I got out of the car, I could smell it. It was overwhelming. I was afraid to smoke. I was like, where's this coming from? I literally thought the gas main had broken. Another resident speculated that it could be coming from the nearby creek or from sewage. God, no, it smells like like a used diaper filled with Indian food. Or it could just be what we were discussing earlier about the Philadelphia Phillies. It could be where it's coming from. <laughs> Next one's Pennsylvania. Also, locals react to wild stolen ambulance chase after shirtless Philly driver. Videos of an hour-long police chase involving a shirtless Philadelphia man uh, who stole an ambulance Friday night sparked a big reaction online from locals and nationwide. The 40-year-old man, dressed in nothing but a pair of boxer shorts, began driving straight towards one of the cops, who opened fire on the ambulance. Four shots were fired, and the thief was struck in the leg. The cop was partially hit by the vehicle. Both parties' injuries were not life-threatening, and the ambulance thief continued to drive. CBS Philly reported that the fastest the man drove was 25 miles an hour, and the total distance driven traveled was under three miles. You want to buy some death sticks? You don't want to sell me death sticks. I don't want to sell you death sticks. You want to go home and rethink your life? I want to go home and rethink my life. I don't know what that one was, but that's good. That's Star Wars. It's funny if you watch the clip of that. It's just a slow-moving chase. It's like the OJ chase. I was but expecting with a, something like, oh, it's it's a high-speed, dangerous ambulance. Because they fly, but yeah, nope. this guy was just he was joyriding. He was joyriding. Well, that's going to do it for today, for this Monday. Uh, glad that you joined us. Ian Simpkins going to be back later this week. Uh, but my name is Brian Fromm. Join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life.